Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. For many victims of domestic violence and their families, the red flags are only seen after it's too late. That did not cross my mind that he was capable of killing her until it happened. 32-year-old Preeti Reddy was a well-educated, financially independent young dentist. She'd been in a relationship that was abusive, but not physically. The indirect and cumulative manipulation masked the warning signs. He would subtly undermine her ability. It would be in certain situations and instances where maybe she's feeling particularly vulnerable. That behaviour has a name, coercive control. And now there's a push to criminalise the acts that almost always precede murder. It may look like uh, being isolated from your friends and family. It may look like, you know, controlling of finances, monitoring and surveilling. If you do compare it to what happens in, in um, prisoners of war, for example, it's a similar sort of concept. The psychological torture is what, what they do is, you know, denying that person liberty and freedom. Backing the fight are women's magazines. We'll be doing stories non-stop until we see change. Hope for change is what's driving Dr Nithya Reddy. I honestly like think the biggest solace that my, me and my family could have in this is is coming to a day where we don't where we don't see any women or children being killed. One woman is killed every nine days by her partner. Lily Mayers, ABC News, Sydney. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst. This week, I'm super excited to share a fascinating and illuminating interview with award-winning author and investigative journalist, Jess Hill. Now, if Jess Hill's name isn't familiar to you, let me give you some background context. Jess wrote the award-winning book, See What You Made Me Do, which is available in Australia because Jess is Australian. That came first but also in the US and the UK. And you'll hear Jess talk about other countries where it's available too. And Jess and I have been campaigning to criminalise coercive control in Australia. Now, if you want to help, you can sign my petition to criminalise coercive control in Australia. The link is in the show notes. So there's some homework for you, and you can read the book as well. There's no passengers on Crime Analyst, as I said right at the start of the podcast when I began it. So do check out the links in the show notes. Okay, so let's get into it with Jess Hill. Hey Jess, I'm really happy that you've managed to jump on for us to talk because last time when we were due to speak, there was so much going on in the world that we decided to reschedule and (laughs) with the likes of Cosby with Britney Spears. I mean, there was just so much happening on the day when we had scheduled to talk, but I'm really glad that we've managed to carve out this time together. So please go ahead and introduce yourself to my listeners. Sure. Uh, Yeah. So my name is Jess Hill and I've been reporting in the area of domestic abuse for the best part of a decade now. And before that, I was a Middle East correspondent. I was a investigative reporter for uh, a show called Background Briefing on ABC Radio, and I was also a producer for um, Radio Current Affairs. So I've spent probably uh, going on 15 years as a journalist, and I, I guess that the last 
seven or eight years of my life, I've become obsessed with domestic abuse and particularly with coercive control because I think when I came to it, I didn't, I did not understand it at all. I had a very old fashioned idea of what domestic violence is, um, that it was primarily an, an incident or a collection of incidents or a collection of abuses. And because I came to it with that lack of understanding, every day was like this massive, a half moment, you know, with numerous epiphanies. And I thought to myself, if I'm having these, then I really want the rest of the community to be having these as well. And I think when I started to understand the nature of uh, power and control and how that not only happens interpersonally but also throughout our systems and how it's you know often those same dynamics that happen inside the home are replicated within the courts, within the family law system, that that's when I kind of made up my mission to get people to understand it so that we might, as a society, have a better chance at fixing it. So you've been on a mission, very, <laughs> very similar to my mission, but mm. your mission culminated in an incredible book, See What You Made Me Do, which is global, isn't it? It's available in Australia, in America here, in the mm. UK. I'm sure it's been translated into other languages elsewhere, has it? Yeah, it's, um, it's bad. we just got a China um, deal. It's in Russia, it's in Turkey, it's in Hungary. It's in um, Hong Kong. Um, yeah, all over the place. Amazing. And I'll put the link in the show notes to where people can click on the link and buy your book, because it really is, for me, one of the seminal books of our time. It probably is the leading book. That's what I say in training. I always mm. list off lots of books because people always want my recommendations. But I always say, really, if you want the most current, if you want the lens that is contemporary, that looks at different aspects in the criminal justice system, in the family justice system, perpetrators, the nuanced detail, and from a female perspective, because I think actually that's really important too. But your journey as a journalist and your honesty in telling it's really like a story of mm. it unfolding of where you were originally in terms of your knowledge to then having these light bulb moments or epiphanies, as you call them, that really takes everyone who reads it on the, oh my God, journey, which mm. is what I hear lots of people say. And in fact, I was just talking to Dr. Jessica Taylor about your book because I was talking to her about the reference with Stockholm Syndrome, which mm. I tell everyone about. <laughs> and it blows everyone's minds. I mean, not just that. I mean, there are loads of other things in there as well, particularly in the medical world. Yeah. But the Stockholm Syndrome story really does shed a light on how things can become, from a male perspective, um, a syndrome without any data, without any peer review. And literally every week someone refers a case to me or talks about a case and they reference Stockholm Syndrome. And I mm. have to tell them it's not a thing. So please tell my listeners your <laughs> uh, story around Stockholm Syndrome, because it originates from you that I've had that particular light bulb moment. And then I want to dive into some of the other things, because your book, well, it took, was it six years to write? Almost, almost four, but I've been working on the issue for about five years by the time it was finished. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's a long time to be diving into something. But let's start with Stockholm Syndrome, because it gives people an insight, really, into things that are epiphanies that really make people think differently about mm. things they've accepted, just because it's written in a book or a journal, and normally written by men. Yeah. And I have to say, though, that when I first found out about this was through the work of um, both Alan Wade and Linda Coates in Canada. And you know, I think the reason why they were really focusing on how Stockholm Syndrome had been misdiagnosed, misconceived, is because their work really focuses on dignity and centering the dignity of victim survivors, particularly in, in, um, in how practitioners respond to them. And so Alan particularly had done these interviews with Kristen Enmark, who was one of the hostages taken, um, who was one of the bank clerks taken hostage in the Swedish bank vault, which is the place where Stockholm Syndrome originates. And so essentially the story is that in the early 1970s, there was a Swedish bank heist 
And these six bank clerks were taken hostage by um, a criminal, Jan Olsen. He came into the bank and demanded that his friend in jail be released. Um, he was subsequently released. That man came to the bank as well. And for six days, they held these um, bank clerks hostage. Now, Kristen and Mark, she was 23. And she could see that the police really did not know what they were doing. And the fact was, like, the police had never responded to a hostage situation like this. So they really were rookies in this area. They brought in this psychologist, um, Nils Beirut, to help them try to understand the psychology of the hostage taker. And so under Nils Beirut's guidance, they attempted to find a relative of Jan Olsen. They found this teenager out in the, you know, Swedish countryside who they believed to be a relative of Jan, was not actually a relative of Jan, they, but they got him in on the train, believing him to be, and then he and Nils Beirut marched into the bank in an attempt to negotiate the release. And Jan Olsen sees this stranger walking into the bank and starts shooting at him they run out and then Nils and the police urge the teenager to go back in thinking that like he might have better luck on the second try. But of course, he's not related to Jan Olsen. It's a total failure. And in the meantime, the clerks, including Kristen, are looking at this just going, we're going to die. Like these people have no clue what they're doing. They can see that there are snipers positioned around the bank and they feel like if anyone's going to kill them, it's going to be the police. So Kristen makes a phone call to a radio station and and she wants to tell them that like they are terrified of the police at this stage. And people hearing this just can't believe it because to question authority like that in 1973, it's not like if you'd hear that today. Today we you know we've got Black Lives Matter, we've got all this questioning around police um competence, but back then to question that authority was really unheard of. And so Basically, she gets to a point where, and this is classic 1970s, she actually calls the Swedish Prime Minister. Don't know where she got his phone number, but anyway, she calls Olaf Palmer and she pleads with him to release her together with the hostage takers because she's saying, basically, if you let us leave with them, they will release us. We trust that they will treat us well. She's been given those assurances by the the second criminal who'd been released from jail who's basically told her, look, I'm going to stop Jan doing anything really terrible to you. Don't worry. You're going to be okay. That's the only person in this situation who's given Kristen any reassurance. So she's hanging on to that. Um, That's her lifeline. And Olaf Palmer refuses to give her any reassurance, basically says there's no way we can negotiate with, um, with criminals. And at the end, although this was not in the transcribed remarks, Kristen swears that he says, if you die, you'll just have to content yourself that you died at your post. And wow. she says, I don't want to be a dead hero. So anyway, eventually the police sort of march in, they tear gas the whole vault. It's a huge hoo-ha. They manage to get the, the hostages out alive it's a total display of machismo. Apparently two Swedish police like rip their shirts off and march up and down the street. Like, I mean, it's really ridiculous. And Kristen sees through it and sees how ridiculous it is. The ambulance comes and says, we, you know, they want to take her out on a stretcher. And she says, no, I'm going to walk out of here. I walked in here six days ago. I'm going to walk out of here. Anyway, Basically, she goes on radio afterwards and blasts the hell out of not only the police, but also Nils Beirut, this psychiatrist. And Nils basically comes onto the radio and just spontaneously comes up with Nilmumstork syndrome as an explanation for why she is so hostile to authority, that she has felt an attachment to her captors, an attachment that is sexual in nature, but that is also about, uh, you know, survival. And that's why she cannot see that her true saviors are these authorities and she's placed all her hope in, in the hostage takers. And, you know, the, the comments from the British media around this case are things like, it was surprising to see her be so alert, as though that was proof that she was sick. And essentially, this Norman Stork syndrome 
then later became Stockholm syndrome because Norman Stork is not very catchy, I guess. Um, and, but at no point did Nils Beirut speak to Enmark. At no point did he do any kind of diagnostic testing with her. You know, it just came out of this situation in which his authority was being challenged and undermined. And since then, you know, really reputable psychiatrists and psychologists have adapted it. But I'm very much now having looked at various different syndromes like parental alienation syndrome and others that have been born in this like really misogynistic, so has a really misogynistic basis. It doesn't matter how you adapt it. It doesn't matter whether there are aspects to it that could be seen as applicable. You need to burn that theory down and start again and go back to the drawing board entirely because if it has those misogynistic roots, it will continue to behave, you know, have misogynistic sort of ways of behaving. That that's in, and and it will be used in misogynistic ways by the system. So I feel like Stockholm syndrome. It's really important to just completely trash that and to go back to the the actual truth of how and why survivors say, stay with people that are a direct threat to their lives um, beyond just the you know, the actual trappings of the systems, but that psychological need to stay with someone to fix them to, you know, or the need to be loved by them. They are all parts of Stockholm syndrome that people think, well, that proves that theory. Well, no, there are all sorts of different reasons why that's happening that you miss when you just sort of like use something easy like Stockholm syndrome to describe it. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Absolutely. I agree with you. And, you know, getting these typologies or these categories and just putting people in these boxes, normally women, because actually I rarely hear it described of men, actually the cases that are always referred to me or where people are speaking about Stockholm syndrome almost always relate to a female victim and a male perpetrator. And in fact, the most recent case um, was a young woman called Colleen Stan, who was abducted and abducted by a serial perpetrator, and he kept her in a box, would you believe, Jess, for seven years, seven years, and he tortured her across that time. He did the most heinous things to her, and she did manage to escape, but it took a long time. He made her write a a slave contract. In court, it was argued Stockholm Syndrome, And in fact, a number of psychologists recently in an article that I was quoted in said, yes, she displayed Stockholm syndrome. She fell in love with her captor. She absolutely didn't fall in love with her captor. How insulting. Totally insulting. She was fearful for her life. Therefore, she did everything to stay alive and survive. Mm. Mm. But that's the misquotes that people just don't understand. Actually, when women are genuinely in fear for their life, Mm. if there's a credible threat... They will do and say, they will collaborate. They may well freeze initially, but they will collaborate and they may fight initially, but she then collaborated with. And in, in this particular article, I had to speak to those who had published it and asked for these references to change because mm. it was not factually accurate. Mm. And she she fortunately did survive and she can talk out about it now. But for seven years, my goodness, I mean, you I see so many different types of cases but guaranteed Stockholm syndrome will pop up. Mm. And it, it really is alarming how people are just very quick to pop women into these boxes and pathologize them as if it's something, you know, a deficit or something wrong with them mm-hmm. rather than actually when you are in fear for your life and the person is a bigger physical threat to you. Mm. Nine times out of 10, you're going to do what they're telling you to do. It's not that you're complicit and you're not complying with you're being coerced that's right so we go back to coercive control Mm. which is what I end up talking about in most cases so you reference coercive control and uh, that's what we have talked about a lot when we've been in discussion and I was really pleased to have the conversation with you on real crime profile 
Perhaps you can explain to my listeners when you first came into contact or became aware of coercive control Mm. and also define it. Sure. We know what it is, but I think it would be really helpful to hear you've been, you know, deep diving and immersed. And it would be great to hear just those two points before we talk more about the book and what's going on in Australia. Sure. Yeah. So I first, I mean, the first contact I had with the notion of coercive control was with the idea that domestic abuse is about power and control. So when I started to understand that control was actually often at the nexus of of a of an abusive dynamic, I guess then seeing the power and control wheel was the next step into seeing it. But probably, I think probably a combination of reading Evan Stark's book, but also Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery. Her book, Trauma and Recovery, that really, that, was my Bible. And I think what she does that is so phenomenal is she shows up coercive control for how it operates in all these different contexts, not just domestic abuse, but also in the cult context, in some prisoner of war situations, in sex trafficking, in, you know, basically shows how it operates as a general way for an individual, a group, or a nation state to gain power to override the autonomy of the person they're subjecting it to and to basically engage in a type of thought reform where you are changing the mind or minds of the people that you are controlling and coercing. So, that to me was the key to helping people understand coercive control because as long as we just locked it in to the domestic space in which women are most commonly the victims and men are most commonly the perpetrators, it it was still getting stuck in all these myths and preconceptions about female vulnerability, female weakness, about all these myths around things like Stockholm Syndrome or whatever. As soon as you start saying, well, okay, these same techniques were used against trained soldiers in the 1950s during the Korean War, and the effects were largely the same. Disorientation, feelings of being overwhelmed by the, the, the thoughts and needs of the captor. If they are the same responses, but they come from trained soldiers who are trained to withstand torture and who know that they've been captured by an enemy, well, maybe it's not a weakness on behalf of the victim that actually what they're experiencing is a symptom of coercive control, not a failing of theirs to either leave or um, be more resilient, etc. And the notion that actually coercive control is this kind of evil genius set of techniques that can work in any situation And so the basic techniques of coercive control are isolation, the micromanagement of daily life, surveillance, uh, which can be in an intimate relationship, anything from constant text messaging during the day and and requiring a, a quick response, or it can be more sophisticated like an actual stalking app on your phone that shows the perpetrator where you are at all times. It's degradation, um, insults and threats, belittling, and a whole, a whole slew of techniques or tactics that basically form a web of abuse that is not just a collection of individual abuses, but a process of entrapment. And I guess where I think, where I think we've made, made an error in our understandings of domestic abuse is up until now it's been, you know, we've really tried to get past the idea that it's just physical violence. And and I think the sector itself has been really successful in doing that and said it's also financial abuse, it's psychological abuse, it's emotional abuse, but we're still sort of like sectioning it out into individual little silos. And what coercive control shows you and what the work of the sociologists back in the 50s after the Korean War established is that it's not, when you see these acts in isolation, they are they do not show up the system it's when you see them all working together in this intricate web and you start to see how for example 
if a person is isolated from their supportive connections, if they, um, if they feel their friends are turning against them and they are also getting those little jokes in the ear about that, what they're wearing, about their competence levels, all those sorts of things that you're starting to get a person whose world is shrinking. Now, if you just looked at, oh, they're not seeing their friends so much, or they, they get these insulting comments in their ear. If you looked at that in isolation, you wouldn't see the effect and the effect might look really over the top, like, wow, she really can't handle herself or she must have some background issues as to why she's so vulnerable to this. But when you see it all working together, that's when you start to really understand it. And I think basically to understand coercive control as a system that scrutinizes, questions and controls every aspect of your life, where from one day to the next, you're not sure if something really inconsequential and seemingly innocent will be used against you, where you feel like nobody will ever really believe you because you can't even really believe what's happening yourself. And all the while, you are just becoming more disoriented, more confused, more bewildered, and your sense of self is being so overwhelmed by by the feelings, needs, and wants and demands of the perpetrator, that when you look in the mirror, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you hear in your head is the perpetrator's voice. And I think that's the most damaging part of coercive control. One of our our parliamentarians here said, coercive control destroys you from the inside. And I think what we've looked at in domestic abuse more conventionally, is it destroying you from the outside? coercive control gets inside you and it is like a virus that then just starts to operate of its own accord. It's so insidious, isn't it? Mm. And and yes, that drip, 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 and bearing in mind it's normally from a person you trust mm-hmm. and who you've you've bonded with, you have an emotional relationship with, therefore you trust them. But I think it's so difficult because it's the internal and external when you then ask questions about it to others, the first thing they do is ask questions about you. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're a woman, it's, you know, well, what did you do? Well, what did you say? Well, how did you behave? And we're so quick to unpick what she did mm. rather than focusing on that constellation, that collection of behaviours, as you say, which oftentimes is invisible mm. to many. The invisible spider's web that's so elaborate and intricate, mm. that web, as you described it, that entraps someone, but it's invisible chains. I keep saying this about Britney Spears. And I said very early on, there will be rules and regulations for her with fear of consequence exactly. if she doesn't follow them. Yeah. And those and rules will change the all challenge. the time, right? Like it's not, that's the thing about coercive control is that it's not even that there's like a set of 10 rules that you have to abide by and you just get to learn those rules. And then, you know, you fit into that sort of tinier um, sphere of life. It's that those rules are always changing. Because the whole point is not about establishing a set of rules. It's about having your partner be hypervigilant. And so if you keep on changing the rules, they have to keep trying to second guess what demand you're going to make next and know that no matter what they try to do to do the right thing, in inverted commas, it will always be up for question and it could always be the wrong thing. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned cults as well. When we understand Keith Rainier and Nexium, and there's been lots of cases that I've pulled apart and the dynamics are exactly the same. And, you know, akin to brainwashing, you're talking about very smart, intelligent people that have been indoctrinated over time Mm. and their sense of self has been eroded to the point they don't know which side is up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a an organize we see it in organizations as well. And I know one of your parliamentarians talked about the army, for example, but certainly in the police service where it's legitimized. Mm-hmm. And I certainly saw it across the policing culture. So when you do get a police officer who's using those tactics on their partner, but as we know too often actually if it's policing, if it's law enforcement, if it's military, those cases don't tend to get looked at and scrutinised mm. as they should. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge trust and confidence issue. I know that it's the same in Australia as the UK and also in America. And I you know, really thank you for your explanation of coercive control because I think too often people now are using the term, but they don't really understand exactly what it is. Oh, totally. And, you know, that's 
That's to be expected, I guess, because we're having a, a real surge in public awareness about coercive control. Um, and, you know, in Australia, for example, really it's only been in the last year that it's become a term that's commonly known. And I guess it's been tricky because as it's become commonly known, but not necessarily well understood, we've also had a pretty effective campaign to include it in a criminal statute. But with anything that's new, and especially in, in a situation, um, in, in, a, um, in a context as complex as domestic abuse and as with so many risks involved in terms of in, in, um, involving law enforcement, when you start sort of, you know, talking about criminalising coercive control, and everybody suddenly got to be up to scratch on, well, what is it? What would that look like? I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily understand what it is, but are landing in certain positions about whether or not it should be criminalised um, for both in both the positive and negative position without necessarily really understanding what that would look like. And so, yeah, it's it's led to some confusion. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, having changed the law on stalking in the UK, particularly in England and Wales, for me, the big elephant in the room was always coercive control and domestic abuse. And that really led me on with two other CEOs from grassroots female-led organisations. Mine was Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service and Women's Aid and Sarah Charlton Charitable Foundation to start to question and scrutinise the legislation um, we didn't have the domestic violence legislation per se, and we knew that we we had criminalised stalking, and therefore it made sense for us to look at coercive control, and we were told that it would never, ever be able to be criminalised. Mm. And I kept saying, but why? If you say it's something will never, ever, for me, that's like a red rag to a bull. That means I've got to look at it even harder because why is there such entrenched resistance? And interestingly, it was the same resistance that came when some of my colleagues were trying to change the law on marital rape. It was the same resistors. And that always intrigues me. And it was the same resistors with the stalking law. But it took us a year to produce that overwhelming evidence, compelling evidence, actually, with women's voices from all different areas. And I'm talking about survivors, some of them victims, because over 35% had never reported it because they said, what's the point? There's no crime. He didn't physically hit me. But we had about 98% in our victims' voice survey who said they did want it to be criminalised. And of course, yes, there were some detractors and there were some who said that it would make things worse and we weren't ready for it. And I hear that same discussion in Australia, also in America. And I always say, well, if not now, then when? Because there will be no perfect time mm -mm. at all. You're never going to get all your ducks in a line where everything is perfect, not in this sector, not when men are at the top of the decision-making tree mm. in every type of organisation and politically speaking. But what I will say is that year of pressing for law reform and producing the evidence and showing case law and victims, what they had to say, what professionals had to say. Most of them were on board, but not all were. The general consensus was we needed to do something. And that was really the beginning, not the end of the discussion. And as you know, in England and Wales, I pushed very hard for us to have money in a pot to deliver training so that law enforcement and others would be trained before the law came in, mm. learning from stalking law and six of my other law reform campaigns, but we didn't get the funding. Mm. Scotland mm. learnt from everything that we did and they managed to get, it was actually Gordon McCready, who was the superintendent there, he managed to get the executive to put some money in the pot to train law enforcement and the police were very heavily pushing for it to happen. Mm. And that was a very important, their learning experience from England and Wales to them what they created. And we do have to learn from each other what works and what doesn't. That's exactly mm. right. And we've had this discussion many times, but you can't just lift up a law and drop it into a country either. You can't just import it. Mm. You've got to understand culturally. And we've had this discussion many times. But I, I just wanted to say one thing about unintended consequences, mm. because... 
every law change, I've looked at unintended consequences. And it's really hard to predict, actually, until something comes in. It is difficult. And you can sit with teams of lawyers and you can look at the animal of the law and how it might move. But we never anticipated a positive unintended consequence, which was Sally Challen and her being imprisoned for actually what should have been manslaughter. She was a victim from the age of 15 to 56, but she was deemed to be a murderer. Her victimhood was never discussed in court. There wasn't a coercive control law. Once we brought the law in, Harriet Wistridge used the legislation to show she was in fact victimised. Mm. And on an appeal was mounted and it was allowed and new evidence was produced to the coercive control law and her psychiatric injuries. And Therefore, it was agreed that she would be, she'd already served nine years, by the way, of a 22-year sentence. So it's not like she got off in inverted commas, but she did, uh, she was released from prison after those nine years and the charge was reduced to manslaughter. Now that is a positive outcome Mm. where the legislation actually did something good Mm. that we didn't ever anticipate. And I think whenever I read or hear people say, or unintended consequences, it's normally framed as a negative. Mm. And yes, we do need to look at those, but there can be some positives too. And cultural change is really important to signal. And I think at a time where we've had the Me Too movement, we haven't really had a movement, you know, we're kind of pushing this boulder up the hill, but it we're not really in people's homes and we're not really talking about the abusers who actually create the most harm, cause the most harm and kill the most women and children. Mm -hmm. And we have to, don't we? Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, I have become a bit of a lightning rod for some people's anger about the criminal justice system um, in Australia. And, you know, I think probably where we erred to begin with was not explaining well enough that really what we're talking about is law reform we're not really talking about like creating just gigantic new powers for police. What we're talking about is taking the existing laws around domestic violence that are incident focused and saying that actually what we need to include in that criminal statute is, is yes, a wider set of behaviors so that police ask more questions so that they can show the entire picture of the relationship to the courts for people who want to involve police in their personal lives and who want to have that criminal justice system involved in in what's happening to them. So I think that starting with let's criminalise coercive control, coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement and particularly in Australia where that, that movement has been picked up by First Nations people here and where, you know, a big and very necessary part of it has been to look at police brutality, has been to look at, um, you know, structural racism and misogyny within the police. And so to come into that environment saying you want to criminalise something that disproportionately affects First Nations people uh, and, and and other vulnerable people, disabled people, etc., or people who are vulnerable because the system makes them so, that is a very tricky conversation to have in Australia right now. The interesting thing is that, like in England and Wales, when you survey victim survivors, the majority of them say they want these laws. And not even necessarily because all of them would call police, but they just want the option. Um, sort of like, you know, vast majority of people want euthanasia laws. Not because they necessarily see themselves as having to use it, but they want that option. They want to be able to make that choice if they needed it. And I think that at the moment, the, a lot of the conversation has been on what might be the unintended consequences of the laws. And that is vital. Marsha Scott's been really good when she's, you know, um, had her discussions here with parliamentarians in Australia saying that you have to co-design this with victim survivors, with the sector and really foreground the people who if there are unintended consequences, would be the ones who get disproportionately affected by those. So foreground them because, and what I've said a number of times, is if if you can make a law safe for them, if you can improve the culture of policing in whichever way that happens, of the courts, of the family law system, so that the people who fare worst under it are faring better, then everyone will be better off. So yes, foreground those people, absolutely. But 
what has not been really coming through is that we already have laws against domestic violence and they already have unintended consequences. And part of this law reform is to address those unintended consequences of the original laws, which is when you focus on incidents and you get the vast majority of women resisting in some way, which may be physical resistance, it may be other types of acts, it could even include other types of criminality. If you do not see that in the context of coercive control, those women who commonly will come to the door when the police are called and be far more likely to admit to what they've done than the perpetrator because they see themselves as as having done so in response, as not being the aggressor but being the resistor. The police want someone to charge. So they hear the woman confess to a crime and they charge them. And there's no onus on police to look at why they resisted in that way, what had happened beforehand, place it in any type of context. So for me, a lot of the concern about will women be misidentified as a result of this crime, well, we have not seen that happen in any other jurisdiction. And women are being misidentified under the current criminal setup. That's why I think that setup needs to be reformed. But there's just been I think because out of the Black Lives Matter movement, we've also, you know, there's been much more mainstreaming around ideas around abolition and where defund the police actually becomes abolish the police. It means that you're having the conversation in a context in which actually there are a a number of people who don't want police involved in these sorts of things at all, who think that it should be communities responding to domestic violence, communities holding perpetrators accountable, communities protecting victim survivors, communities committing to caring for both to improve the behaviour of perpetrators and to stop the violence so as not to respond to them with a violent system. All that sounds good when you know when you just hear it initially. But what it doesn't take into account is that there are a very dangerous cohort of male perpetrators particularly who will not change who refuse to change, who in a behaviour change program will take it over and and will actually ruin it for the rest of the participants. They are very high risk. They are serial perpetrators. They ruin the lives of women and children in one relationship after the next. Their violence often escalates in one relationship to the next. What do you, What does the community do with them? So that's, first of all, that's that's presuming you've got a community that centres the needs of the victim survivor. But presuming you've got that, what does the community do with those high-risk perpetrators who may be, in the current system, the most dangerous call-out a police officer will have to respond to in their day? So who amongst the community has the power to step into that environment and and use enough power to overwhelm the power of the perpetrator? And then what do they do with them? Where do they put them? Okay, so these are questions. The other, the other really pertinent point is, and this I've learned particularly from Pragna Patel from Southern Black Sisters, from Manjula O'Connor, who works particularly in South Asian communities in Melbourne, in Australia. And their point is like, okay, police are patriarchal, the courts are patriarchal. We live in a patriarchy. Our communities are patriarchal. <laughs> and particularly for women from you know, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and women who are in religious communities, very religious um, Christian communities, but just any community really, there is a very strong erring towards protecting the perpetrator. So what do we now just trust communities to centre victim survivors? Because they don't do that now. So what's the pathway to getting to these communities of care? And there are amazing strategies like justice reinvestment, and I've seen them used in, in Australia. I've visited the people who, who use them. I've seen them in action. They are amazing. They have such great impact on, uh, on the prevalence um, and severity of violence and the, and the cohesion of the community, but they involve police because you can't have a community solution that operates separately from police. 
because we have police. And if police aren't included, they'll just continue to operate how they've always operated. Whereas in justice reinvestment, literally you have police sitting at a table with, with, with all of the community sectors that respond to domestic violence. And they work through the cases, you know, every morning. And at that table, you have not just casework, you have accountability because you have the sector be able to say, look, your man went to that address last night and was totally inappropriate. And they're able to have that face-to-face accountability with police. But they, and they're also able to basically catch any, any cases that are going in the wrong direction where victims might be misidentified, et cetera. But if you don't have police at that table, then police will just continue to operate as they always have. So for me, I have really learnt a lot from some abolitionist thinking about how do we as communities take ownership of these issues. But I don't think that you can have a society where you don't have laws and where you don't have some way to enforce it. I'm not particularly attached to police. If there's a better way to do that, great. But there's got to be someone to enforce it who has more power than the perpetrator. And we have to acknowledge that there are high-risk perpetrators who no matter what system we have responding to them will need to be in some way removed from society for a period of time for the safety of the victim survivor where there will have to be some kind of alert as to what that person is capable, some type of monitoring. And if we want to reinvent that system, fine, but you've got to have an old, you've got to show an alternative and show a pathway. Don't just say we want to rip out police we don't want laws because that is actually totally betraying the people that you're saying you want to be loyal to, which is the most vulnerable in our community. Yes, and it's a very valid point. I mean, the cases that I've worked in my 25 years, the most dangerous ones, domestic violence perpetrators. And that's a simple fact. It's just that people don't realize how dangerous some of these men are. Some of them are psychopaths and some of them are serial killers. But we don't make those links. And coercive control is the most dangerous type of behaviour. I see it in all serial killer cases that I've worked. So I think it's all very well for people to have the hypothetical academic debate, get rid of police, get rid of, you know, don't be a carceral feminist, all these things that seem to be doing the rounds at the moment. But when your life's in danger, when someone is threatening you or when they're knocking 10 bells out of you, who do you call? Mm. That's the situation. We have a system. And yes, it's nowhere near perfect at all. And I've been, you know, levering bits and pieces of it with law change, eight law reform changes. And I know that each one won't be the panacea. Mm. It's not going to change everything for everybody. But I think you're right, Jess, for those who want to use it, for those who need to use it, we have to give options and choices. And actually, any piece of legislation is only good as is only as good as a person interpreting it. Yes. So the cultural change has to come from the people working within it, if it's led by people within it, men and women. But I think in Argentina, once now just getting into your book a little bit more and your documentary, which, you know, was fantastic, a three-part documentary. When did it air in Australia? In May. In May. And can people view it currently anywhere else in the world? Yeah, no, we're, we're working on distribution deals, but no, not at the moment, unless they are naughty. Um, it's on SBS On Demand, if you are naughty. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be you up You won't there. be thanked for that, Jess. <laughs> you, won't, you won't be thanked. The producers will be telling me, Laura, kill crime analysts, take that segment out. But it, but as soon as you get do get a distribution deal, and I hope that you do, then I'll make sure that it you know I retweet it and put it in into crime analysts, because it is a documentary that's relevant to everywhere and anywhere, actually. And you go, or whether you go, I'm not sure, because there's a Buenos Aires piece in mm. there where you're covering the female-led police stations. And I know it was during the pandemic, so I'm not sure we if didn't you travelled. We wanted to. We were literally getting visas just as, I think it was in February 2020, we were going through the whole visa process. And then, yeah, by March, it was like, no, you're not going anywhere. So... Unfortunately, we didn't get to go, but we did have crews do it on the ground for us. And it's really interesting, actually, hearing the feedback from the Argentinian film crews that went and filmed these police stations for women, because these were people who are old enough 
to remember what it was like to to live under the um under the generals and at a time when police were absolutely part and parcel of some of the worst violence um committed by the dictatorship uh where they were kidnapping raping torturing women where they were impregnating them like literally handmaid's tale style and and so when when the the director the argentinian director went to these police stations he was really taken aback because he said these are truly feminist organizations and he couldn't believe how centered the women were you know and how basically the first position these these women's police came from was believe the victim survivor who's coming to you and then investigate from that basic that that basic understanding jumping in here as i'm going to drop part 2 next week this interview is fascinating and i hope that you found it really insightful You'll hear more about the female police stations as well as Jess's docu-series next week, along with the horrific murder of Hannah, Alia, Leana and Trey Clark. A case that was brutal, a case of coercive control and stalking, a case which led me to campaign in Australia for coercive control law reform. So until next week, be curious ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details